and welcome back to History for Today. Today I'm thinking about note-taking. I've been reading a lot about it. I've been working on expanding my own note-taking capabilities and making them more efficient. And I'm now thinking about teaching them to my students. The object of the game with a lot of these students, I think, is to try to make writing a regular practice so that it isn't a big traumatic event when it's time to write a paper. Many of my students may not think of themselves as being the types of people who are going to write frequently in their careers or their lives. They may not be comfortable putting their thoughts into words on paper or on the screen. And they may not think that this is a valuable skill to develop. Ironically, they may be more interested in other media like YouTube, for example, or like podcasts. Of course, media is available in a wide variety of formats. So they can now enhance their education by listening to podcasts, to watching online lectures, to watching my YouTubes, to listening to audiobooks, a whole lot of different options. The funny thing is, for all of those people who prefer YouTube, the people on YouTube, the ones who aren't hemming and hawing and tripping over their words or saying, you know, at every gap in the conversation, at every breath they take, the ones who sound like they know what they're talking about generally use a variety of tricks. In the first place, they're editing a longer piece of video to take out all the pauses and to keep the flow going. Secondly, they're working off a script that they've written, just as I am. And thirdly, they have read or researched the topic that they're talking about. So they're not just talking off the top of their heads about something that just caught their interest. One more reason that it's useful for my students to become comfortable with writing is that the preponderance of recent research into the ways that people learn most effectively suggests that we can probably only hold about four distinct thoughts in our short-term memory at any given time. Not that long ago, it was discovered that ravens and some other birds can count to four. Scientists believed that we were a little bit smarter than that and we could hold about seven thoughts in our heads at once. More recently, they've revised their estimate and found that it seems like seven because we use tricks to develop relationships between some of the things so that we can remember them as kind of a single thing. So basically we're cheating and we're really only able to concentrate on about four things at a time, just like the birds. The good news is, of course, that we have long-term memories that interact with our short-term memories very efficiently. And, of course, we can write stuff down, which hugely expands our long-term storage. Elon Musk has recently begun a company called Neuralink that plans to develop a brain implant that will create a much faster interface between our brains and the outside world than we have previously had. Or at least that's the hope. One of the things that Elon talks about is that the thumbs are a very inefficient way of getting our ideas out of our heads and into an electronic device. And obviously the thumbs are slow, but most of the information that transfers from the outside world to us comes into our brains through our eyes. And our visual acuity is huge. Secondly, a lot of the information that leaves our brains and goes into the outside world comes out in the form that I'm giving it to you right now of words. And so that also is a lot more bandwidth than just the thumbs that Elon's talking about. So he's setting up a little bit of a straw man there. 
He's always saying that we're already part cybernetics since we store a lot of our knowledge and our memories outside ourselves. People make a lot of this digital self that we create in places like social media. But I actually think it's kind of fuzzy thinking in a way. The after image that is left on Facebook when a loved one dies can be a little bit eerie. Or maybe it can be comforting to someone who's missing that person. But it's the memory of the actual person that is really operative here. There's no digital self. And no one who didn't actually know the person would in any way mistake whether they're looking at a person or at a scrapbook when they saw these things. No Facebook profile, in other words, is going to pass the Turing tests anytime soon. That said, there is something to the idea that since the invention of writing, actually, people have been creating, quote unquote, second brains to make them smarter and to make them more productive. For example, when the novelist Neil Stevenson introduces the philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz in his historical fantasy, the Baroque trilogy, the first thing that Stevenson tells us is that Leibniz's father had died when he was a boy and he left his son with a magnificent library that Gottfried devoured. This is the second brain that makes the boy into a prodigy. The other major factor in addition to reading, of course, is writing. People who study learning today are beginning to claim that memorizing isn't really that effective. Not only does it not lead to real understanding, which they've been saying for years, but they're now beginning to say that it may not even lead to that much real learning. Memory experts apparently make up stories to anchor random factoids of trivia that they have to remember into their long-term memories. It's the story about a bit of data that allows a Jeopardy champion to remember it, at least according to the grand champion of Jeopardy, Ken Jennings. Sherlock's memory palace in Sherlock Holmes is based on an ancient mnemonic technique that anchors ideas in a structure that a person can walk through in their imagination. It's the associations that trigger the memories. A more modern way of remembering things that is much more accessible to most of us is writing things down. But not writing things down like a court reporter rapidly transcribing everything she hears. She probably forgets all of that as soon as she walks out of the courtroom at the end of the day, and probably rightly so. The key seems really to be not quoting, but paraphrasing. Many of us are probably familiar from school or from pursuing our own interests with the technique of highlighting a text as we're reading it, and then copying out the passages that we've found particularly compelling, oftentimes into a notebook filled with quotes. It can be very rewarding to appreciate a clever turn of phrase or a particularly wise or insightful observation. But does copying them into a notebook make them ours? Does it ensure that we've actually understood their meanings and learned their lessons? I would argue, and I think I can back it up with a pile of studies, that while appreciating a quote may enhance our motivation to learn its lesson, that learning actually happens when we explain what it means in our own words, even if those words are nowhere near as pithy or as impressive sounding as the original Shakespeare or Confucius or Robert Frost that we're taking them from. 
Finally, the way we do this, the way we process these ideas or insights and make them our own is not just by highlighting them with a yellow marker in a book and then walking away, but by that next step, which is going back over our highlights and writing the ideas that we thought were important down in our own words. In the end, this process of writing our reactions to the thoughts of others is the first step in thinking our own thoughts. And in a very real sense that I will pursue and I'll talk more about in the future, this writing is thinking. So that is a very early taste of this note-taking and writing and thinking program that I'm going to be rolling out to my students in the next semester and that I'll be planning over the rest of this semester and the break between them. I hope you found that interesting. Stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening and I'll see you again next time.